What up, what up? Jimmy Murray here with Frank Catalano, and we are the Cash Flow Kings. So today, guys, we're going to do something a little bit different. We've been going back and forth on social media with the real estate addicts out of Boston, and we've come together on this really interesting opportunity to talk about the differences between the Boston market and the Providence market as we enter this late stage of the real estate cycle. So we hope you guys really enjoy this one. We had a lot of fun coming together, and here it is. Frank, Jimmy, thanks. Really excited to be uh, doing a podcast together. We've been talking about this for a few weeks, but um, I think one of the cool things is that there's a lot of synergies between Rhode Island and your investing strategies and style and what we're doing up in Boston. So I'm um, really excited to talk to you guys. Thanks for having us. Excited to be here and uh, really excited to start to talk about some of the some of the differences between the and similarities between the Boston and Rhode Island real estate market. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start with just the podcast. How long have you guys been doing Cash Flow Kings? We launched it probably October of 2019. I've been playing around with the hashtag since 2013. And we actually went through the trademark process, which was a lot of fun and caught our lawsuit like two months into the trademark process because some guy in Chicago started using it in 17. We ended up settling. So we now have the trademark, which is really cool. But it was a quick, a quick learning opportunity to figure out how to go through that process. Should we do that for us? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we should explore. How much do you think you spent doing the trademark uh, mission? Frank, where are we at? Like less than 5000 It would have been no, cheaper think, if you didn't have to I go. I think we're around 10000 Okay. Well, it's a great right. name. But that was, yeah, that was partially because we had to go through the discovery process um, because we caught the lawsuit from the other guy who had started using it after we had used it. So. Well, he had started a podcast previously, but we had started, you, you, you and I had been using the hashtag a lot longer. Correct. Yep. Those yeah. are just yeah. What made you guys want to start a podcast in general? So when I started using the hashtag, I always had the idea that I want to give back, right? And I think that we're in like the golden era of podcasting right now. It's a great opportunity to give back, but it's also a great opportunity to help you become a real estate leader in your local market. So hopefully it attracts more deals as you give back to the investing community, and then it helps you level up your investing game as well. Absolutely. Now, for me to add to that, uh, I have a background in teaching. I t actually taught for 17 years. So um, one of the things that we have is uh, we say we have to motivate, educate, and help people duplicate and make their money in real estate. So, you know, a bunch of buzzwords in there all at once. Nice. But, good alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> it should be a What rough. about you guys? What, what were your goals? You know, very similar. I think the only maybe I'd add is um, kind of approach this like a master's degree in real estate development. We get to talk to guys yep. who might bill out at $500 an hour and they'll spend an hour recording and an hour afterwards. And um, it's really been a great experience that way. Yeah. Some of the guys we've talked to have, you know, are like legit, you know, uh, pioneers. Big and, players. Yeah. Big players in the industry. And we're, we're honored to talk to them. Who's been your guys or one of your favorite guests? Yeah, so hands down, our favorite guy was Antoine Martel. He legitimately started investing from his dorm room when he realized he didn't want to work for the man. He started with $40,000 and he started buying $40,000 multifamilies. I think it was in Memphis, Tennessee, but even off the podcast, just like real down to earth guy. And he's super sharp. So we had a ton of fun talking to him. Do you bring people in from all over the country or just Northeast Rhode Island? You know, where, where's kind of your geographic reach? So we kind of, we've been taking them from anywhere. Uh, it's funny, the number of people that always want to volunteer to be on our podcast, we always have people that want to be on it. We also had people from uh, like Neil Bawa out of California as well, and a few others. Uh, I don't think his has been released yet, but we don't mind going anywhere. We just want to have it 
a story sometimes, one that we haven't heard before, or just something cool that we're thinking about, you know? Absolutely. And I think I think a lot of folks, in terms of the feedback that we've gotten on our podcast, is they want to hear that come-up story. Not that real estate experts don't listen to podcasts as well, but a lot of people want to hear about how these folks get started, and then they connect with their story a little bit more on a deeper level. Yeah, I agree with you. A lot more interest in sort of that entrepreneurial journey rather than maybe someone who's climbed the corporate ladder and is earning a big salary. But I mean, and that, that's cool too. Absolutely. So many different ways you can. Yeah, it reminds me of we had our good friend Willie Mandrell join us a couple of weeks ago and he took a loan from his, what, his cousin to get it by his first property. Yeah. And uh, he always says you could drop him anywhere in the country and as long as he's got a decent credit score, he could find his way to his feet. I love that. Yeah. Love that. Nice. So we're talking about cash flow and cash flow kings. Tell us how you become a cash flow king. What's the best way to do it if we are getting started? <laughs> love that. Love that. So I'll jump in first. And I know that Frank's going to have some good stuff to add, but it's really about finding those value add multifamily opportunities. So my favorite type of deal, and I think Frank will share in this, is finding that building that has below market rents, typically occupied but something that as you turn over tenants, increase the rents, make the units a little bit better, that's that would be the key to becoming a cash flow king. Do you find it challenging to find those types of properties in this current market? <laughs> yes, definitely a lot tougher. Not impossible, but levels tougher. Absolutely. It's all about networking right now and buying things off market. You got to realize that I've bought quarters at auctions for less than the price of a quarter before. So I'm always big on cash flow. Yeah. Uh, if, if I can make money, uh, I'm always interested. I'm a little bit of an entrepreneur. I have a bunch of other side businesses, always doing things. But uh, to give you an example, uh, we had an off-market deal last year and everybody kept saying, oh, there's no way you can make money on, on anything right now. We bought a nine unit in Riverside, Rhode Island, a part of East Providence for um, 600000 and uh, the average rent in the building, I know the numbers in Boston don't sound the same, but <laughs> the average rent in the building was seven eighty a month. And it did not need a lot of work. And we bought it and we raised everybody within three months to 930 as an average. It did not lose a, a t- one tenant. Yeah. And, and we, we were still below market. And you didn't put a, you didn't spend a dime on capital improvements. We didn't have to. We decided to um, upgrade some of the windows and upgrade, put it in a new parking lot. But you didn't have to do the parking lot at all. It right. was just it was nice additions for the tenants. Was that part of your initial debt service when you acquired it? Did you have sort of a a term loan with the construction portion? Not at all. No. Okay. We just went through a traditional. Uh, we had two banks competing over us. Both were through network connections. One of them took us out to dinner. The other one didn't take us out to dinner, but gave us a few better terms and rates and. Uh, at one point, we're negotiating, and they're like, "You got to realize you're getting a better deal than our best clients." It's like, <laughs> "Yeah, we'll take it." <laughs> nice, nice, yeah, that's great. So, what was your debt service uh, one ratio that we talk about? Uh, we had John uh, Kefon a couple mm-hmm. episodes ago. We were talking about different financial debt terms. DSCR, DSCR, or debt coverage ratio, mm-hmm. debt service ratio. Basically, how much did that change by increasing those rents? I assume to start the bank needed you to be at least 1.2, right? Right. Yeah, I think it was a 1.2. Um, to be honest with you, we ha- we've we had it for less than a year. So I'm not 100% sure what we're at officially now. Sure. But uh, yeah, I wasn't worried at all. So when you're underwriting a deal initially, 
what obviously cash flow kings. So you're obviously looking for cash flow. So do you care? Do you only care about cash flow or do you also care about cap rate? Do you care about cash on cash return? Appreciation. What's your primary driver when looking or evaluating a property? So locally in Rhode Island, I don't care about appreciation at all, hmm. um, especially at the top. It really doesn't matter to me. Uh, cash flow is is the most important thing. You can look at it different ways. Like you said, cash on cash return. I like a, a decent cap rate, et cetera. Uh, we, we've passed on a lot of deals. I don't I don't care if we only do one or two deals this year. In, in the lower end, of, when we're at the bottom of the market, maybe I'll do 10 deals that year, whatever. But uh, we're doing other things instead. I mean, we're, we're doing some hard money lending. We're uh, doing some syndication work in other parts of the country, stuff like that. The biggest opportunity that I've seen lately is really that hard money lending front. And even just being the conduit to hard money lenders for a lot of investors has provided an opportunity for myself as well. Um, so that's been a, a big pickup in this late stage of the cycle. And where are the funds for that coming from? Are they, are they is it self-funded or are you as, acting as more of like a broker for the fund, for the hard money lending? Or, or is, are you getting like a line of credit based on some of the assets that you have or where yep. does the fund yeah, come from? So, yeah, so more of a broker. Yep, absolutely. So um, we've been able to establish some really great connections to private capital as well as with other hard money lenders. So when folks come in, they they pitch the deal to us and we're able to direct them and then get either half a point or a point when the when the loan is underwritten. Um, so just another way to find an opportunity to make money at this stage of the cycle. What are some of the opportunities that you guys have tackled? You know, aside from development, I think one, I keep my real estate salesperson's license active. And candidly, most of the business that I do through that is by way of referrals. So I always have my ear to the ground. If I hear of someone who wants to open a restaurant, I know a terrific uh, retail broker in the city who specializes in restaurant. I made 40 grand once on a referral. Developer approached me. He said, you know, I'm thinking about hiring this group to sell my 60 unit building in South Boston. And the wheels just immediately started spinning. You know, he said, what do you think of them? They're okay. But I knew one broker who I thought was excellent for that. And to this guy's credit, he came in and um, stole the show and landed that listing. And uh, a quarter point on that was was pretty nice. That's yeah. pretty serious. Yeah. One thing that we do is, um, you know, with Dan and I having experience in Boston doing ground up development and gut rehabs, we offer um, what we call like an on-demand consulting service. So... Folks can come to us as little or as much as they want, and we help them through the process if they're on their own endeavor for the first time or their second time around. And we like to say that whatever whatever we cost them, we should be saving them at least twice as much. And we helped somebody build some ground up uh, project last year, and so we did pretty good there, right? I just signed my first contract doing the same thing yesterday, and I appreciate your guys. Hey, awesome! All right. But absolutely, just pitfalls that you can avoid. It's the, uh, you know, things that you're going to get blindsided with that maybe we might have the benefit of experience. So um, for sure. Yeah. I think that's huge. And I think like the underlying theme there is what we're all talking about is we become that connector, right? So whether, you know, you're not the right guy on the commercial deal, but you know someone, so you connect that, that opportunity to who can take care of them or even being the consultant, right? You're connecting them to essentially help them level up. For sure. Even hiring. I had a owner of a construction company ask me if I could help him find a senior level project manager and he offered me $10,000 to do it. Sure. Nice. <laughs> I'll go yeah. through my network. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. It doesn't hurt. No. And one little post on Instagram, you don't know who it's going to reach. And he's a great guy and he runs a great firm. So it's not like, and, and 
you're helping people. You're not doing anything, you know, you wouldn't recommend for your best friend or a family member. Right. Exactly. To make you guys laugh, uh, talking about being connectors and everything else, do you remember how this concept first came together? No. Oh, our, our podcast. No, it wasn't the, on the podcast. Well, yeah, just, just this podcast. The episode. How it- well, so Sean Looney on Instagram suggested yes. that I reach out to you guys. That's funny because uh, and that might be true, but also the fact that, I don't know if you know, but who's Choose Boston? Do you guys me. have a Choose Boston? Yeah. That's Mark. Yeah, so I saw on your post on Instagram something about all the top players in the Boston real estate market. And I basically sent out to you, I'm like, how do we get on that list? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do remember that. Oh, you're right. That's Dude, funny. Know? That is funny. So uh, tell us about the genesis for um, Cashflow Kings. What was the brainchild for the podcast? So honestly, I, I can remember probably like maybe three years ago, um, Frank and I are part of the same real estate investors group in Rhode Island. He's like, hey, that hashtag's pretty cool. What are you going to do with it? I'm like, I, I really don't know. I just kind of use it to tell my story. I said, well, you should figure out something. I'm in education. Why don't we try to leverage that? And uh, I want to say maybe summer of 2018, He's like, dude, we're launching a podcast. And I was like, okay, let's, let's, <laughs> let's try to do this. And then he kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And finally, we, I think we started the Instagram page October, November, 2018. Yep. And then we set the hard stop of in or the hard line in January to say, hey, listen, this is when we're going to record our first podcast. And then we've just been having fun with it since then. So we haven't monetized it in any way. We don't sell, we don't sell anything on it or anything else. And we just, we're just enjoying giving back. We got a lot of feedback from, especially uh, we have a lot more of a younger audience, especially with the Instagram following as well, just the people that are listening to us. So that's why we have a lot of 20 somethings that we usually try to interview. Like uh, one of those really great was a a girl named Brooke and uh, Brooke is a world traveler. She works for a uh, media company and she can do it from anywhere in the world, but she bought a three family in Providence and she grew up in Rhode Island. So we get to meet her at a local real estate group. And uh, I don't know how old she is now, maybe 25, 26. And it's just awesome. Nice. And are you both from Rhode Island originally? Yep. Yep. Excellent. Yeah. So I, th- so I think that's a cool part of the process. And you guys can probably touch base on this too. The folks that you get to meet, like the people that you bring onto the podcast and get to meet and get to build a deeper relationship. It's just a really cool part of the podcasting opportunity. We talked to Bruce personally last week from Mount Vernon Company. This guy bought a ton of stock in the back bay and south end when you could buy for $85 a square foot and he still owns oh my god all, still owns all of it yeah he said the savings awesome. and loan crisis was presented a better opportunity for uh, real estate purchases versus even the quote unquote great depression of 0708 which i thought was very yep. interesting i totally agree I think, do you guys do any yeah. business other than the podcast do you do anything together do you own any other properties together not currently <laughs> So Jimmy, but what do you do outside of the podcast? Yeah, so um, I'm a local property manager based out of Rhode Island with exposure in southeastern Massachusetts. Actually, so full disclosure, do manage some properties for Frank and live in one of Frank's buildings currently. So grateful for that opportunity. And now we're we're starting to focus on building a a brokerage in Rhode Island as well. I think Rhode Island's really an interesting spot. And uh, I remember I was working for Suffolk Construction and I went down there. We did a Blue Cross Blue Shield building in Providence. And yep. I was just looking around. I'm like, this is between Boston and New York. It's on the water. And you could buy a three family still for like three, $400,000, it seemed. You have colleges out there, some institutions. So not to 
speak poorly of Providence, but why hasn't it appreciated? Why since that time, that was six years ago, I feel like you could still... Hold on, we can answer that in a minute. Uh, so other <laughs> things that I have going on, I'm just a full-time real estate investor. I hang out and uh, get to have lunches all the time with anybody I want. And uh, besides that, my, some of my side hustles, I have a, uh, a VA company and I have, a, I have a syndication company. So I've been starting to buy stuff in other parts of the country. What's the VA company do? Virtual assistants. Uh, so uh, we have a company called realagenthelper.com. Uh, basically, my buddy and I just always need extra help at the time, especially when I was working two other jobs. And with the three kids and everything else, it's like we kept hiring other people. And basically, we turned that into a little side business. And it wasn't to necessarily make a lot of money, but it was actually, it really helps me build more networking. I personally know almost every single one of the people that we have VAs with, which allows me to network more with them and everything else. So back to the real estate question, Providence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Frank, Frank will have a good perspective on this, but I think it's really mostly political. And I think it's cultural as well. But I mean, you guys see the statistics probably every single year. You see the CNBC survey of Rhode Island always being the worst state to do business in. Yeah. It's tough. I'm not saying that there's not an opportunity to make money, uh, but I know that you had mentioned that there's three families listed at 300,000. If it's close to Brown University, probably a great opportunity. But as you start to move away from there, I mean, it's still, Rhode Island, most of Rhode Island is still probably in the area that you want to pick up multifamilies between six to $70,000 per unit if you actually want to make a return, Yeah, which probably sounds crazy to what you guys see. Uh, insane. So my perspective is a little different. You're going to laugh. I have a historical perspective. Ever since World War I, when they didn't put the subway in, Rhode Island has just been the little problem child that uh, New York and Boston are able to grow during growth eras. But usually Rhode Island's the first one in recession and the last one out. How has Rhode Island fared since, you know, the 08 or 07, 08 kind of downturn in the market? You know, have you completely recovered and then surpassed? Or have you, you know, are you still trying to recover from that or pull out of that? I think it's area specific. So there are some booming areas of places that have just lit on fire in terms of price appreciation. Rents have dramatically increased as well. I think that there's a much broader tenant base. But I think like the turn of the market in terms of when things came back and started getting warmer was in about 2015 as compared to the, the trough of the recession. But I would tell you that there's still some areas that aren't as sought after that are still, could, I mean, could be buying opportunities if you want to buy in C&D areas. But the A and B areas are, are definitely back and above where they were prior to the Great Recession. So I'll give you some perfect examples. Uh, the city of Woonsocket, I have a lot of people from uh, Boston and New York calling me personally and asking, what do I think of Woonsocket? It's like, stay away. <laughs> Not because there's anything wrong per se with Woonsocket if the prices are right, but basically they're paying more than in Woonsocket than I've ever paid per door anywhere in Rhode Island. But just because we're at such a hot market right now. You know, I was just looking at three units and four units in Woonsocket zone for, you know, $350,000. And uh, in my opinion, the rents aren't there in it. There's a lot of uh, government funding and government assistance in those neighborhoods and stuff like that. And I, I think this will ring true with you guys as well. So it's all a numbers game, right? So whether you're developing property, you're, you're doing a full gut rehab, or you're buying cash or income producing property, you got to look at the numbers, right? It doesn't matter what somebody's asking. It's, it matters about what, what we think it works at for what we're looking to get as a rate of return. 
Very true. No, I, I think what someone's asking is sometimes irrelevant. Some of the best deals that I've certainly ever done, I've paid far over asking price and um, doesn't matter. I put the blinders on that and just figure out what the market is going to command for it and what the return is. Let's dive deeper on that point because that's something that is like against my religion. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you gotta talk it. about Amen. what it's like to pay. Yeah, why are you paying more? Property. Why are yeah. you overpaying, yeah. Mark? Sure. I mean, <laughs> let's start let's start with a real strategy is to for brokers to chum the waters and to put out a artificially low list price to attract a lot of interest. And so you have to be cognizant, like you don't want to invest with emotions. It has to be numbers driven. But if at the end of the day, I see a real opportunity, perhaps the underlying zoning is very favorable and I'm seeing something where I can add a lot of square footage that others might not see, or, um, you know, that's usually my biggest value add. I'm, I'm on sort of sticks and bricks construction guy. So, you know, I unearth value largely through renovation and through additions, new construction, tear down. That's, that's my play. But anyway, if you show up and there's, there's a lot of bidders, I don't really care what the asking price is. As long as I know I've seen five pitches go by in the past and this one's coming straight across the plate and looks really juicy. I'll swing as hard as I can at it. Now, is that I for, love the baseball reference? Yeah. <laughs> I try to make yeah. everything. Yeah. Is that for... You Rhode Island has a population decline, if not just a stable population, and we really haven't seen any job growth at all. So we, the most of the new people that are moving in our area, they're driving to Boston every day. You know, so so I've I don't think I've ever paid anything over asking price. Usually, I pay twenty uh, percent less than asking price and still pick up properties, if not more. So that train that they're proposing between. Boston and Providence is is definitely something that I think people would really want there, right? So you know something that I don't. I mean, there's already a train. Well, no, Providence. they're proposing. So the they're proposing. They're proposing like a not a high speed, but more of like an electric type public transportation. I I thought I read between Boston and Providence, and they want it to run like every fifteen to twenty minutes or something like that. That's amazing. We've heard it yep. here first. That's exciting. That, yeah, I haven't heard that. That that'd be huge because people talk about the the station move in in or to add a station in Pawtucket, but candidly, from an investment perspective, it isn't a really um, like industrial commercial setting. So there aren't multifamily properties that are close, like walking distance. So you'd have to be a developer to tackle that opportunity. But also, if it's not in a great neighborhood, even outside of the industrial setting. But you're close enough to Providence that you can pay a couple of dollars more and you can take the Excel and have, you know, that guaranteed air conditioning and, and great Wi-Fi going in and out of Boston. This is so exciting people, Right. So, I mean, it's cool. But I think what Dan talked about uh, with the electric opportunity, that sounds way better. Dan, you have something to add on that? Did no, no, find just anything confirming. On it? I found the article, so I wasn't... Just spreading oh, no, rumors. We, on yeah, spreading rumors. <laughs> we, we weren't doubting you. We just, so that's something that you guys hear in the Boston market. We haven't heard that at all down here in the Providence area. Maybe because yeah, it's an ITA proposal. Maybe that's why. Yeah, so I've heard about the yeah. one socket train and the Fall River yeah. train, but like yeah. one socket's going to Worcester. So I don't know how big of an opportunity that would be. I live in East Boston, which is on one side of the Charles River and the city's just on the other. And I've been telling buyers for the last seven years that the water ferry is coming and it's imminent <laughs> and that you'll pay $1.50 or $2 and use your Charlie card. And I've always believed it every time I've said it. And I've just always been disappointed at how long it's actually taken to come to fruition. 
So I do see that a lot in Rhode Island where we have like the East Providence waterfront that they've been talking about developing for 50 years. And it's finally coming. I mean, and I have seen two or three buildings built in the last five years, but it's taken forever. My dad was talking about it. <laughs> was your dad a real estate investor? Not at all. My dad stunk at real estate. <laughs> so another reason to purchase over market ask would be if you can find a way to obviously monetize it and, and force, not necessarily force yep. appreciation, but can you add more units? Can you add, you know, one thing that we can't really do here and they're starting to regulate it is like short-term rentals, Airbnbs. Do you guys see yep. any pressure from the government there saying don't do it versus like up here in Boston and other areas of the country, you know, people hate it. And then in other areas, like that's their tourism. That's how they have their economy. Yeah, so I've seen it. We picked up a three unit to manage in Newport, Rhode Island, which is a pretty touristy area. It's got the Tennis Hall of Fame and some sailboat events. So the owners recognized that they wanted to target students at the local university down there, uh, local university of Sally Regina University. But they want us to Airbnb it over the summer. And honestly, the summer that we did it, the owners made five times the amount of money that they would make. And we made probably you know five or six times what our management fee would have typically been managing Airbnb because it's a very different game. It was a ton of work, but we learned a tremendous amount. And then the town council came in and said, hey, listen, now you have an Airbnb area because you got to think like if you're going to Newport and you're trying to rent a hotel for a night, you're probably like 250, 300 a night. And that's outside of like the Newport Folk Festival or when they have the sailboat um, happenings. So the hotels clearly paid off some uh, town council folks in order to create that area. And you had to meet like 15 to 20 different criteria. So we have seen Airbnb have some pressure in Newport. It's a heavily, you know, frequent tourist area. Um, but in Providence, I think there's a huge opportunity for Airbnb, specifically around Brown University and Rhode Island School of Design. I think Airbnb as an investment has a lot of political risk to it. If you can mm -hmm. underwrite it and it works as a traditional leased uh, rental property, terrific. Go for the home run and, and play the Airbnb ball. However, if it only works as an Airbnb and it's otherwise very marginal, like just be cognizant that municipalities all over the country are ratcheting down just like you described. Yeah, I think we all agree on that 100%. One thing I'll add, uh, it's just the whole concept that I find that most Rhode Island cities and towns are anti-development. I don't know how it is in the Boston market. Uh, the only stuff that's really developing locally, like in Providence, is when some big billion-dollar development company is coming in to like purchase up part of Thayer Street or even the Fane Tower. They they they've been fighting that for for a year or so, but you really don't see a lot of pro-development. Um, zoning board, planning boards, et cetera, in Rhode Island. I'm not familiar with, you know, Rhode Island or Providence zoning code, but, you know, Boston is, we just had, we've had a couple zoning attorneys. We actually just had uh, Pat Mahoney on the other day talking about zoning and, and the city. And Boston's an outlier. I mean, there's so, you can get a variance for anything here um, that can be granted at, potentially at the ZBA. And, but that also comes with a ton of uncertainty. So, you know, we talked about here, if you're going to be buying something that you need a variance on, it's too risky to buy something that's not contingent on zoning approval. But, you know, you also have to go through various, you know, a, a very, very long 
potentially drawn out process with neighborhood associations, abutters meetings, et cetera, et cetera, just to get something approved. So, you know, while there has been challenges and there's a lot of unknowns, I think Boston's been pretty good at, you know, the, the current, you know, administration within the city, you know, is pushing for more housing. But it's it's still difficult, and we you know it's it's become more cha- more and more challenging as people are pushing more pushing back more. Yeah, we've had um, overall the mayor has been asking for is it is it fifty nine thousand new units? Some crazy wow large wow. number. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I think it's because I mean I think for every two jobs there was one new unit of housing coming on. So politically, wow. yes, we want development, but also politically, there's a lot of sometimes nimbyism and that's very street by street sometimes like oh yeah we want more housing that. but maybe not right here <laughs> but, so how did you guys learn the zoning process and kind of the ins and outs to to navigate that i learned the zoning process the hard way <laughs> fair enough i, I bought too. a bank owned property as a two family and i i thought i was doing the right thing and researching the permit jacket for the property it was like x number on cottage street and I found that it was a legal two-family, this, you know, let's call it 100 Cottage Street, but that was actually the same Cottage Street in Roxbury. What I purchased in East Boston was a was a retail and a residential unit above it. And um, so I kind of learned by fire. I'd say we're. I'm still learning the code. You know, there's just, there's so many nuances and, you know, Neighborhood by neighborhood, there's there's differences in the code. Potentially street by street, there's within the same neighborhood, there's differences in the code. So, you know, you're proposing a project on one street and then you're proposing a different project three streets over and the zoning code could be completely different. And there's so many different nuances within the code that that I'm still learning. So I don't think I'm I don't think I'll ever be well enough versed in the code in the zoning code to really master it. I mean, I, I can kind of get around. But <laughs> we, I don't know. We, we focus on like the, the main things, which are setbacks and FAR ratios and height and unit numbers and things like that. But, you know, to, to the guys earlier points, we have a zoning attorney. Do you think this is like a, a good example of the Pareto principle where it's like 80-20? So you guys, like the, the foundational stuff that you just talked about, Ray, is like 80% of the way. And then it's the 20% that you can't control that you got to take the risk on. Pretty much. That's yeah. why you have a contingency. Well, I mean, it's enough that we can underwrite a deal, right? So, you know enough that we can underwrite a deal. And then, you know, next step would be going to an architect and zoning attorney. Got it. So would you guys do any developments, uh, ground up new construction as a, maybe like a larger project, maybe 40 or more units, something along those lines, and hold on to it uh, for cash flow. Does that work in those markets, or have you thought about that, or are you buying existing housing stock and finding opportunities to improve that way? Yeah. So actually, uh, probably about a month ago, I flew up to Columbus, Ohio, um, as we've gained more access to capital. So we've been looking at syndicating in other markets, maybe a market that hasn't taken off yet. So we thought Columbus might be that, um, huh. but it, it wasn't. Columbus is absolutely on fire. Um, I mean, they're selling like quarter acre lots in downtown Columbus for 2.5 million. And then they're building like very large commercial residential structures uh, with probably 40 plus apartment units. So we've looked outside of Rhode Island. I think Rhode Island would have a more opportunity if it could attract more jobs. I mean, even I used to work at Fidelity Investments. And if you sat outside that campus at five o'clock and you watched all the cars leaving, 
80% of them are driving in from Massachusetts. They're like, even a lot of folks in Rhode Island aren't in Rhode Island, aren't acquiring those roles. Um, so if Rhode Island can do a better job at acquiring larger companies to come in, in those corporate settings, I think there would be more of an opportunity to have those, you know, 40 plus unit apartment complex developed apartment complexes to be developed. Do you guys have any affordable housing regulations in the Boston market? Yeah, in the city of Boston, if you go above nine units, uh, you're required to provide 13% uh, affordable. And um, there, that's being looked at very heavily right now. There are certain pockets of Boston that are studying 20%. So we are currently looking at a 1.4 acre site in Rhode Island to build a 18 to 20 unit townhouse style apartment complex. And uh, the problem is, is that affordable housing, luckily the city I'm looking at is already at their 10% minimum. So we may only have to put in one or two units of affordable housing. But when you have all that affordable housing regulation, it makes it harder to build, as you guys know. Yeah, it definitely does. And I think that the city understands that. I heard the director of the BPDA quoted recently. He said, I think you'd rather have 13% of a big pie than 20% of a very small pie. Depending on unit mix also, wouldn't wouldn't there be some opportunity in some markets where the market rent that would be paid or the, the rent rate that would be paid for subsidized housing might actually be higher than market rate in some cases? Have you guys seen that in Boston? I mean, we used to see that in Rhode Island around the time of the Great Recession, but we've noticed that now uh, market rents are dramatically higher than uh, affordable housing. Yeah, I will I say agree. that the published Section 8 rents are always higher than I expected them to be. Yes. Yeah, they've been, they're, they're very high. Or they ha- they've gone up, I think, significantly over the last few years in, in the city. I'd say in, in areas, I'd say in like, you know, C and D class neighborhoods, your Section 8 rents blow market rents out of the water. Yeah, for to put numbers on and examples in it, like you could get maybe a four bedroom for $3,000 if it's, you know, if it passes the inspections and it's top quality. So in Rhode Island, uh, we've seen the opposite where uh, I agree with Jimmy about six years ago, the Section 8 rent was so much higher than the market rent, but now it's it's reversed. So we will have people calling us and their Section 8, it's like, I have to think, can I legally rent this to you uh, because it's such a lower rent? Uh, can they legally pay the difference? All that stuff. And there's all these big question marks. Yep. I just wanted to close the loop on that story I mentioned earlier because I didn't conclude it well. But the idea is I submitted plans to the building department expecting a permit to be issued. But instead, I received a refusal letter in the mail citing me for a specific zoning violation, which was that my, I didn't own a two-unit residential building. And uh, a change of use and occupancy triggered a variance. And I was like 26. I didn't, I, I was really freaked out. And I just was working at a large construction firm at the time. And I remember going to the fifth floor, which is where the executive sat. And there was a younger executive who I was close with who had grown up in the city. And uh, this guy took me under his wing. He said, don't freak out. I'm going to introduce you to a zoning attorney. He conference called him right then and there. And, um, got through that process and uh, just realized, wow, you know, I, I, that wasn't so crazy. There was nothing to, you know, freak out about. That's awesome. Did, did you make money on that deal? Yeah, I ended up, that was, that was a great project. I, I did the old uh, live there for two years. I took one of the units, uh, lived there for two years and uh, sold out of that tax-free. And the other unit, I, I condoed out as well. So, I've had the opposite problem where I've been 
burned on a deal that we made a mistake like that with zoning and uh, lost money on it. So it happens. Yeah, you learn. So do you guys tackle a lot of those, a lot of those uh, condo conversions in your area? What does that look like? Yeah, we, um, you know, that's basically taking an existing building and uh, taking it from a multifamily use to a individual rent, uh, individual ownership use. So three rental units, turn it into three condominiums. We've done that a number of times. It's not too hard. A lot of people ask us, what's it like to, to make a condo association or how, to, how do you condo convert? I mean, you could literally just take your existing building that's multifamily, get the attorney to draft up the papers, get an architect to do floor plans, get a surveyor to do site plans, file it all, and now you have a condominium. You have your trust documents and you set it with the city and then assessing catches up maybe a year later. It also, it. it also depends on, on the municipality as well, because Boston, it might be that easy, but other towns or cities like Somerville, for instance, Somerville, Massachusetts, they actually have a yep. condo removal board. So you, if you want to, if you want to take a multifamily or build a, a building that is going to be used for condos, you have to go to this board and they have to actually review your, your master deed and condo docs propose your proposed condo docs and master deed and they'll either approve or deny you you know whether or not you're allowed to remove the quote-unquote multi-family use of that particular building before they'll allow you to record it with the registry that's the converse of it and there's other little things that they're trying to throw in there as well like giving the prior tenants first right of refusal even if they've moved out you have to hunt them down mail them i mean it's some of it's crazy some of them even if they do approve you you'd have to wait a year even if you've done the works before you can get your permit. Oof. So yeah, some, some of it can be, yeah, it varies by town. So definitely check. That's why, you know, people say, oh, I don't want to pay the attorney for this or that. Like, oh, you know, they might save you some money because they've got the knowledge. So, or even a mentor, yeah. a local mentor. So, yep, but the condo, absolutely. but the condo conversion process is, a, it's a construction process from that end. And then it's a paperwork process from the municipality end. And generally speaking, it's, it's achievable. I can't think of any problems in Rhode Island condo conversions. How about you, Jimmy? So I would say there's there's different areas. So just to provide perspective, like if you are, I always lean on the east side as an example. Like the east side is uh, a great area, close to great universities, definitely a more affluent, wealthier area. So if you go to convert a, a two or three family over there to condos, that's probably a great area to do it. But then you go out to one socket and like I I manage a condo unit in a, former six family. And um, honestly, the owners are great. They're, they're based out of Quincy, Massachusetts. They're, they're great clients to work with, but I definitely would not have bought a condo as I'm using air quotes over here in that old six unit building. Like the outside of the building looks terrible. Their unit's great, but one socket's probably not the right area. So if you're going to come down to Rhode Island and you're going to do something like that, try to do it in an A or B neighborhood. And I think it's very achievable. Um, but if you go to the C or D neighborhoods, you're going to have to Try to find some either, you know, I don't know if I want to say less educated, but maybe look for buyers that are outside of the, the local market to purchase those condo units. So based on on the prices of multifamily homes in Rhode Island, is there a big demand for condos in, in Rhode Island for first time home buyers or even, you know, second or third time home buyers that are that are looking to buy? You know, just because if someone can buy a multifamily for four hundred grand, live in one, rent the other two out. How much would a condo in a multi-unit building cost in Rhode Island? Fully renovated, fully renovated. 
Oh, fully renovated. I can't give an example, but uh, we just looked at a wholesale uh, off-market deal yesterday. It was an odd-shaped three-family. It needed some work. One of the three units was a studio, and uh, I think somebody... Wait, was was this in East Providence? Yeah, you were at it yesterday. So are we bidding against each other right now? (laughs) And we don't know about it? Did you put an offer in? Sure did. (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, we might be bidding against each other. (laughs) Uh, Somebody made an offer, I heard, above 200000 for the whole property. Oh, my God, they're absolutely nuts. I know they are. Absolutely not. <laughs> I'll take two. <laughs> yeah, so going with that, I mean, but what, what do you expect the rents to be? That's what you got to think about. So if you, if you have uh, a two-bedroom, another two-bedroom, and a studio, what would you expect the rents to be? Oil, heat, but that's their problem. But You said a two-bed, a two-bed, and a studio? Yep. I would expect a two-bed to rent for 2700 each. And the yes, studio please. to go for seventeen fifty. No. Yes, that's why. This is, this is this is in the city of East Providence, which is so right. Your entire rent roll is probably twenty seven hundred on that building. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's not that bad. Uh, let's see. No, this is about uh, a mile from Brown University, but it's over to the other side. It's over the water. So the first floor, I think we could rent for around twelve hundred. The second floor, probably the second floor, two bedroom, probably twelve hundred, and the studio we're thinking six hundred. So yeah, that's about three thousand. So so let's put that into a condo perspective. So if you gutted the building, completely renovated it, first of all, how much do you think it would cost to do that work? Second, how much do you think each condo would sell for? So I'm gonna I'm gonna actually sidestep your question a little bit, Dan, but I I think it's along the same lines. I think if you're gonna try to convert a multifamily building into condominiums, they have to be like style units or of similar size. And uh, I don't know what I want to say, but like if you have all similar size, two bedrooms, roughly a thousand square feet, I think that works really well. We manage a, a five unit condo and it's in an old Victorian building. It's right on Angel Street and heart of the east side. And all the units are different sizes. And the way that they break down the condo fees, your condo fee, you have the total condo fee across five units, and then um, it's prorated by the size of your unit. So where we run into an issue there is the woman who owns the largest unit, anytime there's an assessment because they're not well capitalized, she you know plays a trump card all the time because she doesn't want to pay for the assessment. And I think that's where when you convert an older building into condos, you could run into an issue where if you have those like-style units where everyone's paying the same condo fee, it's a much better scenario. Yeah, there's something to be said for beneficial interest. And when you're going into a condominium purchase to look at that, for example, in a two-unit building, the rule of thumb is that each unit gets 50% beneficial interest so that you don't always have someone who can pull that trump card. But banks are fairly reticent if they see that someone, one unit owner owns the majority of beneficial interest. Uh, That's a red flag for a lender, typically. Um, But I thought we could touch on one last topic maybe and then uh, maybe wrap it up. but. I'll introduce this and let you guys take it, but the idea of seminars for newbies or beginners, um, there's any number of companies out there that will offer a weekend program over multiple weeks with a mentor, and it costs, I've heard, upwards of $20,000. Or more. Yeah. yeah. Or it well, starts uh, with the okay. short, short, quick sell, then it turns okay. into the next thing. It's a multi-phase, multi-level kind of marketing yeah. scheme. I mean, I got into this business, I was fortunate, whereby I had a degree in construction and then I went to work, you know, more organically. But if folks are just jumping into that, is this a good route? 
we had a whole podcast on how to find a mentor. And I, we, we feel that this is kind of related to that. Do I think a $20,000 program for the average person just starting out in real estate is a good idea? Absolutely not. But if you can get something for $1,000 that's going to be meaningful, or if you can spend with a mentor and pay them $50, $7,500 an hour, then I think those would be worthwhile opportunities. Do you guys have an explicit podcast? No, I'm just kidding. So, so then I can't swear, right? <laughs> no, anything goes here. So, it's, it's all good. So, so uh, I'll just say, F that. Honestly, like <laughs> you should not pay that much money up front. I think like we're, I already said the golden era for podcasts, but even a golden age in entrepreneurship with the wealth of information that's online. We just interviewed Neil Bawa, who is like one of the most um, badass guys in syndications right now in terms of numbers and, and bringing deals together. His time is incredibly valuable. And he has multiple free courses on Udemy in order to help people get going. And then that leads more private lending back into the things that he does. So as someone getting started out in real estate, don't be scared to go out and pay you know, 50 to 100 bucks for a seminar. I was up in Boston last weekend learning from some top social media influencers. It cost me 100 bucks. And I had one-on-one access to folks with you know, 100 to 200,000 followers of how they generate income from social media. So I thought that was really cool. Don't be scared to spend those dollars, but be hesitant when you go out and you know you're going to have that upsell of, hey, we taught you a couple small things. Why don't you pay us 10,000 and we're going to give you a couple more nuggets. Like, be aware of that. I mean, we talked to, I mean, John O'Keefe is a perfect example. I mean, you can, you don't have to spend a lot of money and get an incredible education. 700, 700 yes, $700 course at Boston University in, in downtown. And you can learn unbelievably more than you would learn in an entire week with these clowns at one of these courses. So, I mean, there's, I think there's so many opportunities locally that, you know, and educationally, I mean, we live in such a good area of like an incredible area of the country with such good educational, you know, there's so, there's so much around us that we could leverage for that. We put on an event about a month ago, a month and a half ago called what's holding you back in real estate. And we had six speakers and we charged a hundred dollars a ticket and we filled the room and it was awesome. And, uh, we, we actually gave feedback. We asked them to give us feedback and not one person said it was, uh, overpriced. They all thought it was an amazing value. A hundred dollars a person, you know, you can, I'm not saying spending big money, but you know, there are plenty of things that are free, low cost, joining a local RIA is another big one. I don't know if you guys are part of any different real estate organizations. We charge at our local RIA, it's like $100 a year, $60 for renewals. You need to be part of a local educational real estate investment group. Yeah, we've done a couple uh, real estate investment associations up here. Yeah, I think we went all the way out as far as Watertown? No. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. We, we've done a bunch. And uh, <laughs> I would say like the, the, one of the telltale signs that you're, you're kind of in that bad group is when they're like, okay, here you go. For today, we're offering this package deal. Normally, it's seven ninety nine, but for you, I like you three ninety five. One time. That's only when you deal. get up and run. Yeah, yeah, you just leave. You get up and run. Right. <laughs> That's not where you want to be. We we <laughs> we had a local Sinbad group that closed down. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, we had a local group that closed down. They were charging thirty bucks a month, and that wasn't the problem. This was ten years ago, but the problem was is that every single month they had a national speaker that would come in and sell a multi-thousand dollar program. And it's like, that's not what the real estate groups are supposed to be for. 
the one that we're a part of right now uh, that we just luck out, we don't allow the main speaker to sell anything ever. That's cool. Makes That's sense. great. Yeah. Hey, anything that uh, we're missing here? I think we're coming up on an hour. And I would say, do you guys do any on-site tours with people? I mean, we when Dan and I were um, uh, a little more active with some of the other RIAs, we would self-promote our own projects, but more so like you guys were saying, this, this, it's the educational side of things. So we would bring people through some of our projects and show them, hey, here's here it is at the start. Here it is. It's kind of before the walls go in and here it is at the end. And we were pretty transparent with the overall process, some of the hiccups, challenges, and you know how we were doing overall um, with some of the numbers. Uh, do you guys find that that's offered out there or do you offer it? We haven't offered it yet, though we are considering a couple different things like that in the spring. We have some students that we do mentoring with that uh, I bring them through some of my rehabs. We're doing a, a rehab right now. Uh, I mean, I'm all over the map. I, I got hard money out there doing a rehab, doing a wholesale right now, buying a syndication, always busy, <laughs> all at the same time, because that's how you generate income. I came to one of Dan and Ray's events, and what I really want to give you guys props for is sharing the numbers. I think a lot of guys want to hold that particularly close to the vest, but if you don't share it, that's the most important ingredient, and uh, that that's how you learn. And so um, good on you guys for sharing renovation costs, sellouts, and, and all the rest. If you guys want to, next time you have something like that going on, if you message us some way, we'll put it out there. I mean, we have a we love giving back, helping out too. So uh, we'll be happy to post it on Instagram, Facebook, wherever we are. Yeah, for sure. We appreciate that. You know, Let me ask you guys a question. Uh, I know you guys are so gung-ho on Boston, and uh, I get excited too whenever I see all that building and development going on up there. Are you guys doing any out-of-state investing yourselves? Not yet. Ray and I actually went down to Atlanta, was it two years ago? A couple ago? years ago. Yeah, yeah, a couple years ago. We know I mean, there was another couple that was actually trying to put together a syndication deal right outside of, of, I think right near the airport. Um, it was like a 40 something unit complex for like 1.2 million, needed a ton of capital improvements. So, you know, we were just kind of interested and curious and we went down and took a look at and walked the property. We didn't end up doing anything with it, but you know, I don't know. I, I, I get nervous investing in areas outside of what I know Something that you can't touch or see, especially if there's a problem. It's funny you guys mentioned Ohio because we know other investors that are gung-ho on Ohio as well. But that's more so in their perspective, that was more on the single family market. I mean, I was hearing some people say you can go out and get a single family for like, I don't know, $25,000, $35,000. It's not in a great area and you may not get the best tenants, but I mean... Even if you can rent it out for five hundred a month, I mean the building to pay itself back in like five years. And to me, my time is my biggest resource, and um, I don't have a lot of infrastructure around me. So if I can only take on a limited number of projects, that plays heavily into my decision to stay local. And then secondly, I just think like you can be a hunter or you can be a gatherer. And in this market where we are in the country, people are coming in from overseas to try to play in our in our backyard. I don't really understand why I would go to Ohio. As a throwback to the first episode, Mark. Yeah. Hunter gatherer. That's right. I love it. <laughs> Ray lives in New Hampshire, so, you know, I think that if we were to do any type of quote-unquote out-of-state investing, Southern New Hampshire would be of interest to me just because I know, you know, a lot of people commute into the city or 
you know, northern Massachusetts for work from southern New Hampshire. So that that would kind of be the only, right now, that would really be the only interest in, in my mind for out of state. I guess for me, uh, sometimes I'm thinking to put some money to work passively and actively at the same time. So especially on the passive side, you have to realize I own properties in Rhode Island that I've never been to. Uh, I don't know the tenants. I I pay a property manager to take care of it. So I don't need to go buy it. I just got a great deal through a wholesale. I've already had somebody else using technology, show me a couple pictures. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> so with that, out-of-state investing is not that much different. So if not saying you guys want to, but I know a few Boston investors are investing in the Kansas City market or other parts of the country. I've actually invested with them. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, but I'm not looking for passive investment personally, and I appreciate that that play. But for now, I'm trying to grow money rather than park it and grow it slowly. Frank, can I ask you a quick follow-up on that? Sure. What's your due diligence like? Because, I mean, you know, we hear stories of like mortgage fraud or, sorry, uh, I guess deed fraud, I guess it would be. Somebody taking the deed and transferring it at the registry. The registry is not an area where they, you know, they check for... Um, the validity of a notary. So someone could technically, um, you know, forge everything and then try and sell that property. And now you've bought it, but you haven't really bought it legally. So how, what's your due diligence on like buying a property and just making sure it's it's legitimately there and that sort of thing? Well, I've only invested with people that I've already met personally, which is a good first step, as you know. But I got to be honest with you. I mean, they could do that deed fraud anywhere. Uh, you could do it in your own, it could be done in your own city. People could do it on your own house and you wouldn't even take you a while to notice it. Just being honest with you. Oh, of course. So uh, on the due diligence side, that's not the due diligence I've ever thought about or worried about. Um, I'm more looking at like rental meter to see if the rents are accurate to what they think they're going to be. And like I said, with high, with high technology, uh, it's just so much easier today to actually do a, a walkthrough. Like there was a property recently in Tulsa, Oklahoma that I did not invest in. But the, the entire walkthrough that my uh, general partnership team was doing was all on video. So we actually literally walked through it with them, which was just kind of cool. And like you guys, like you said, you're in a different market in Boston than we are down here in Providence. If, if I have a uh, hundred thousand or a couple hundred thousand dollars to, to spend somewhere, and I don't see any deals around here this week. I don't mind putting it somewhere else for uh, you know a couple of years, and I'm going to have another hundred thousand coming up in a, two or three months anyway. So I'm going to have that problem again. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to focus so much on deed fraud. I just meant just validating the deal in general. Yeah, no, no, due diligence. Uh, your experience, you guys have run numbers before, so you just you just like uh, some. Uh, I think it was Mark that said you always set your own price and you always decide if it's a deal yourself. Uh, you're still going to run the numbers your own. Uh, just like I always think that pro forma is a bunch of BS. Sometimes the operators, their numbers are BS too. And the beauty is there's so many different deals going on that it's pretty easy to pass on 98% of them. Any any other closing thoughts or should we wrap this up? I honestly just appreciative to sit down and talk with you guys. It's always incredible to, to, to talk with other investors, particularly in a market that's so close to ours, but so dramatically different as well. And when you guys get to Boston, hit us up and uh, we'll grab a beer together. Hell yeah. There you go. Yeah, I'll have to um, have to message you guys through uh, Instagram or, or Facebook or something. We're probably up in Boston. I mean, it's only an hour. It's an hour and 10 minutes with no traffic. So uh, I'm up there at least once or twice a month. Well, when it gets warm, we'll come down and meet you at the beach. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll all meet in Newport somewhere. There you go. This was a great collaborative podcast, a joint podcast with Cashflow Kings and the Real Estate Addicts. 
And uh, if you want to follow us, we're at, what is it? The Real Estate Addicts on Instagram? No, Real Estate Addicts. Real Estate Addicts. And you guys are at? The Cashflow Kings. The Cashflow Kings. Thanks everybody for liking, subscribing. We hope we uh, get some new followers and you guys as well. And see you on the next one. Thanks guys. Awesome.